Thank you for joining this edition of the Forecast Direct podcast. Uh, I'm very honored to have with me today uh, Odid Galor, uh, a professor at Brown University who's responsible for developing unified growth theory uh, and who wrote this uh, magisterial book, The Journey of Humanity, uh, summarizing a lot of his research and a lot of research in the field uh, about uh, essentially the history of human evolution uh, and helping us understand the state of our world as it exists today. Uh, Oda, thanks so much for, for joining us. It is my great pleasure to be on your show. So the title of your book is very fitting, The Journey of Humanity. And you take us on this uh, amazing journey from the cradle of humankind all the way to the present. You help us better understand ourselves and our world. Uh, it's hard to actually pick you know, where to start with, uh, with this book, uh, but I guess we, we should start from the very beginning, which is the, the beginning of humanity. Uh, and what life was like in that area. Uh, can you tell us about, you know, how does humanity begin and what is the first stages of, of human existence like? Indeed. So humanity emerges in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. And at the time, humans are uh, preoccupied by survival and reproduction. Living standards are very close to the subsistence level and there are minor differences in living conditions across time and across space. But nevertheless, unlike other species, humans are equipped with the human brain. And consequently, humans are engaged in a process of innovations, very rudimentary one at a time, but nevertheless, innovations that can alter the environment in which people operate, but perhaps most importantly, gradually expand the human population. But nevertheless, despite this process of innovations and despite this process of the expansion of the size of the human population, what we see over this time period is that the standard of living is stagnating for a prolonged period of time. So why do so many thousands of years pass with no major improvement in living conditions. And I think you mentioned even in your book that there's a decline in living conditions, that there's this concept of a lost Eden. Um, you know, what's the reason for that? Right, so we consider human, human history in the context of Homo sapiens, the past 300,000 years, it is quite striking that over 99.9% .9 of human existence, humanity are in what one may define as a Malthusian trap, in the sense that living standards are hardly changing over most of human existence. So in contrast to conventional wisdoms that exist in some circles, we do not see a gradual improvement in living conditions in the course of human history. We see, in fact, a long process of stagnation in the context of living standards, and then, a tremendous metamorphosis in the past 200 years. If you think about the past 200 years, unlike what existed earlier, in which say life expectancy fluctuated in a very narrow range of 25 to 40, we see that living conditions as reflected by life expectancy has more than doubled in the past 200 years. Or if we consider income per capita, it is quite striking that income per capita, as I said earlier, is fluctuating in a very narrow range around the subsistence level for 300,000 year period. And then quite strikingly in the past 200 years, we see this incredible 
14-fold increase in the standard of living in the world as a whole. So what trapped humanity over 99.9% of human existence? So this was a time period in which, as I said earlier, technological innovations took place. They were not at the pace that we see today. It was one stone tool that was replacing another stone tool, very rudimentary technologies. But nevertheless, this technological progress permitted an expansion of resources. But this expansion was not long-lasting. This expansion permitted more children to survive. They permitted more children to be born. And ultimately, these resources were divided over an increasing number of people. And consequently, resource per person did not change over, as I said before, 99.9% of human existence. And this is what we define today as the Malthusian epoch or the Malthusian trap, the counterbalancing effect of population growth on technological progress. Technological progress and population are increasing proportionately, and as a result of it, we do not see changes in living standards. Why does that suddenly change, right? There, and there seems to be, as you describe in your book, this catalyst that leads to economic takeoff, and we suddenly escape the Malthusian trap. But was it really you know, a catalyst, or was it this gradual building up of density of population of technology that somehow led uh, you know, the uh, welfare of, of human beings to take off? Indeed. So over most of human existence, we don't see changes in living standards, but nevertheless, we do see certain dynamism that occurs in the context of the size of the human population, the rate of technological progress, and the degree of the adaptation of the human population to the technological environment. So interestingly enough, the Malthusian epoch is characterized by important dualism. On the one hand, stagnation in living standards as reflected by life expectancy and income per capita. But on the other hand, great dynamism in the context of technology, in the context of population, and in the context of human adaptation. So you, when humanity emerges in Africa, 300,000 years ago, the size of the human population is modest. But as I said earlier, these humans are able to innovate. And consequently, these innovations leads into greater population, greater number of potential innovators. Innovators becomes faster, supporting more people and more adaptable people. And this reinforcing interaction between what I define as the wheels of change, technology, population, and human adaptation, is being reinforced in the process of development up to a point in which we move from stone tool technologies that existed 300,000 years ago to steam engine technologies in the midst of industrialization. The technological environments start to change very, very rapidly, namely inevitably, this reinforcing interaction leads into a rapid change in the technological environment. But this rapid change in the technological environment necessitates education and human capital so as to permit people to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. But naturally, education is not free. 
people are very poor. They cannot economize on their own consumption. And as a result of it, in order to afford more educated children, they have to economize on the number of children. And therefore, unlike what existed over 99.9% .9 of human existence, the counterbalancing effect of population on technological progress is no longer there. And consequently, technological progress, as we see today, is converted into more prosperous people rather than into more people. So throughout your book, you mentioned how you know, hunger, uh, you know, scarce resources is a source of the Malthusian trap early on that we managed to escape. Do you see climate change and environmental degradation as potentially posing a new kind of Malthusian trap uh, given the state of the world as it exists today? So certainly the potential is there. And when we think about climate change and environmental degradation, it appears perhaps as the greater challenge the greatest challenge that humanity has faced since we emerged 300,000 years ago. Now we faced greater challenges before and human ingenuity was able to rescue us from each of these challenges in the past. But this particular challenge appears uh, quite demanding, but nevertheless, I do not think that we will see ourselves reverting into the Malthusian trap. And the reasons are the following. So what kept us in the Malthusian trap is the counterbalancing effect of population on technological progress. The world has reached a new state in which, in fact, we see a gradual decline in fertility in most places across the globe, well below replacement level. And consequently, the counterbalancing effect of population on technological progress is no longer present. Now, this is very important in the context of climatic change as well, because naturally we are polluting planet Earth and the current trend of declining population growth is in fact mitigating the adverse effect of the human population on the environment. Second, during the transition from stagnation to growth, we see an incredible increase in the amount of human capital, the level of education of the human population. This is very important for two, for, for two reasons. The first one is that more educated population can comprehend the adverse effect of our actions on the environment. And as a result of it, take responsibilities and try to reverse the current course of climate change. And perhaps more importantly, human ingenuity has reached such a critical stage in which in fact, with proper incentives, with proper behavior on the part of humanity as a whole, namely gradual transition into environmentally friendly technologies, further inducement for fertility decline, etc., human ingenuity would be there to rescue humanity in the coming decades from the potential adverse consequences and the potential reversion into some sort of climate change. Again, climate change is an enormous challenge that could not be uh, underestimated. But nevertheless, if we do take the proper actions, if we act responsibly, then we do have the main ingredients that will ultimately permit humanity to overcome uh, this uh, potential catastrophe. So 
Well, it seems you don't see the potential for us to have a decline in our living conditions because of something like uh, climate change or environmental degradation. Do you think that this epoch that we've had of very rapid growth uh, is likely to be short-lived? And so, for example, economists uh, like Robert Gordon at Northwestern University uh, mentioned that they've, you know, they think that we've already experienced this very large growth boom as we've had this demographic transition, uh, as we've had new technologies that allow women to go from uh, working in the home to, to becoming part of the workforce, and that maybe the best years of growth uh, are behind us. Um, you know, what do you think about our prospects for having continued rapid growth versus just maintaining the current levels uh, of, of the standard of living that we have right now? So if we take a very broad view, and this is the view that is taken in my book, The Journey of Humanity, then it is quite apparent that technological progress has increased gradually in the course of human history, but not necessarily monotonically. The sense that we see different technological paradigms and we see paradigm shifts that are changing the course of human development quite rapidly and quite dramatically. So the observations that is made by Gordon are interesting observations, and I think that they're valid to a large extent in the context of the discussion that is conducted, but I do not think that they are sufficiently forward-looking. And I do think that within a given technological paradigm, we may see a gradual decline in the pace of technological progress. But as I said before, from time to time, we see paradigm shifts. And once a paradigm shift is occurring, then we see an explosion of technological progress that is taking us into a new state in the context of development. So my prediction is, in fact, that we will see further technological progress in the future, and perhaps even at a much faster pace than we see at the moment. I think that we will see paradigm shifts that will permit humanity, as I said before, to expand into territories that we cannot even envision at the moment. And this is the nature of technology, and this is how technologies were perceived in the past as well. Any type that humanity experienced a major technological breakthrough, this technological breakthrough could not have been envisioned three or four decades earlier. And the same will be true at the moment. So, in fact, I do not share the pessimism of Gordon and others. I do think that humanity will maintain its relentless march forward. So maybe this is a good opportunity for us to shift to the second part of your book, which is on inequality. So before the Industrial Revolution, is it fair to say that living standards across the world were relatively equal, but in some ways equally poor? And then, you know, why did some parts of the world experience the Industrial Revolution sooner uh, before others? So I realize this is a bit of a broad question and perhaps we can break it into a few parts. What roles did institutions, did culture, did geography play uh, in allowing economic takeoff to occur sooner in some areas and others and causing inequality uh, to increase throughout the world. And, you know, let me, since you mentioned the, the forward-looking piece that you think technology will continue to speed up and will continue to have new innovations and new development, what do you think will happen to inequality moving forward? So my book, The Journey of Humanity, addresses two fundamental mysteries. What I defined as the mystery of growth, namely the transition from stagnation to growth that occurred in the past 200 years, 
and the mystery of inequality, namely the emergence of vast inequality in living standards across the globe in the past 200 years. And as I argue in the book, in fact, the two mysteries are intimately linked. It is the transition from stagnation to growth and this dramatic metamorphosis in living standards that occurred in the past 200 years that led into much of the inequality as we see in today's world. If we observe the world at the beginning of the 19th century, inequality as measured as say income per capita in the most advanced nations in the world in comparison to inequality in the least developed nations of the world was of a magnitude of about three to one. We think about it today, it is about 15 to one, 20 to one, or 100 to one, depending how we define regions of the world. So in fact, much of the inequality as we see across the globe today is originated in the past 200 years. It is originated due to the differential transition from stagnation to growth across the globe. So some societies, Western Europe and their offshoots in North America took off at the beginning of the 19th century and perhaps even earlier, others only recently. And since this takeoff was associated with a 14 fold increase in the standard of living in the world as a whole, an incredible inequality emerge in the world to come. And the question is of course, why is it the case that 200 years ago, some societies are able to take off earlier than others. And in the second part of the book, I try to basically decipher the roots of this inequality. And I go through different phases. Initially, I focus on the role of colonialism, extraction and asymmetric trade in expediting the transition of developed societies from stagnation to growth and delaying the transition of developing societies from stagnation to growth. Then I move and discuss the role of institutions, the emergence of growth enhancing institutions in some, some societies and the emergence of extractive institutions, growth retarding institutions in some places across the globe. And I cite some examples in which these differential institutions are critical for the understanding of economic development. But I argue nevertheless that in fact, institutional characteristics, political institutions and economic institutions to a large extent are a byproduct of the process of development as, as a whole. Namely, they emerge in order to facilitate interaction across individuals and to foster economic development once society started to, to be formed. This leads us into deeper forces that are behind institutional characteristics. Similarly, in the context of culture, we see the emergence of growth enhancing cultural traits in some regions of the world and the emergence of growth retarding cultural traits in other regions of the world. But again, culture, cultural traits are not manna from heaven. They are a byproduct of the environment in which these cultural traits are emerging. And as a result of it, I'm reverting back into the role of what I called geographical characteristics and societal characteristics in forming institutional and cultural characteristics and uneven development. And I conclude that to a large extent, it is 
the geographical heritage of societies and their impact on the emergence of culture and institutions. And it is human diversity and its impact on innovativeness and the degree of social cohesiveness that is behind the inequality as we see it across the globe today. So let me touch on one point that you mentioned, this uh, population diversity or human diversity. Can you talk about the role that human diversity has in facilitating growth uh, or perhaps holding back economic growth and then the impact of that on economic inequality? Absolutely. So when we think about diversity, diversity has conflicting effects on economic development. On the one hand, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas, cross-pollination, and this is conducive for innovations and economic development. On the other hand, diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness. It is associated with mistrust. It is associated with disagreement about the desirable public goods, and it is associated with social conflicts. And as a result of it, at any point in time, diversity is associated with these two conflicting effects. And this implies that there is a sweet spot level of diversity that balances between the beneficial effects of diversity on innovativeness and the detrimental effects on social cohesiveness. And interestingly enough, when we review human history, it appears that these beneficial effects in the Middle Ages and before were associated with societies in the Southeast, societies like China, Korea, and Japan, societies that we do not perceive as perhaps optimally diverse. Namely, these societies at the time, given the fact that the pace of innovations were not very rapid, managed to balance the two effects in an optimal way, namely social cohesiveness was so important that this relatively homogeneous society had the upper hand in the context of diversity. But as we move into the present days in which technological innovations is much more rapid, in fact, the optimal diversity is associated with societies like the United States namely societies that are much more diverse than uh, the societies in Southeast Asia. And, so, and this diversity is very beneficial in generating the cultural fluidity that permits the society to cope with this rapidly changing technological change, despite some disadvantages in the context of, uh, of social cohesiveness. And this implies that as we move further into the future, and we're moving into a more and more demanding technological environment, in fact, diversity will be key for human prosperity because diversity will generate, as I said before, the cultural fluidity that is so needed in order to cope with a rapidly changing technological environment. So for our last question, we're still on this you know, journey as humanity. Uh, and as you, you put it, we're journeying now into uncharted territories. What do you think the next steps are in this journey in terms of you know, how much movement we have of populations around the globe right now? How much sharing we have of ideas around the globe right now? Do we get some convergence and we have less inequality over time? Uh, do we have more rapid technological progress in countries like the US that, that lead to uh, greater divergence uh, of living standards? What do you think we have for this you know, next 200 years uh, in, our, in our journey of humanity? 
Right. So my prediction is that, as I said before, uh, the rate of technological progress will continue to accelerate. And as a result of it, it will require um, greater adaptability or get greater ability of humans to adapt to this rapidly changing technological environment. So what we saw in the past two centuries is a greater emphasis on education as a tool that allows individuals to adapt better to this rapid technological progress. Now, this will, in fact, be accentuated even further. And ultimately, the emphasis, as I said, on flexible education and cognitive abilities will increase further. And part of the development that I predict that will occur in the coming decades and perhaps centuries will be the ability of technology to enhance the ability of humans to function in this rapidly changing technological environment. Namely, technology will enhance the cognitive abilities of humans and will allow them to adapt to these incredibly rapid changes in the technological environment. At the same time, I suppose that the inequality that we see in the world today and the rapid increase in the inequality that we see within countries in the past four or five decades will maintain its course, at least for the next few decades, in the sense that technology will be more demanding in the context of education, will be more demanding in the context of cognitive abilities. And since these traits are relatively scarce, we will see a gradual increase in inequality beyond what we see at the moment. And this implies that responsible societies would have to invest more in assuring equality of opportunities, that each individual will have a fair chance to participate in this technological lottery. But at the same time, societies should be prepared to open and uh, to develop safety nets to those individuals that at the moment do not have the matching skills to the new technological environment. But hopefully down the road, as I said, technological progress will enhance cognitive skills across the society as a whole. And as a result of it, perhaps will operate towards the mitigation of inequality that would, uh, uh, that would occur in the coming decades, but perhaps will decline uh, down the road due to this technological development. Oda, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for talking about your book. Uh, a fantastic read, and we really appreciate you taking the time to, to have this conversation with us. Uh, so, so thank you very much. Very grateful for your time. Absolutely. My own pleasure. And I should just emphasize to the readers that, uh, that uh, the book was written in a way that is supposed to be jargon-free and entirely accessible to every possible person. So you can read it yourself. You can allow your children that are educated high schoolers to read the, the book and family members. It's really accessible to all, although it is insightful to top researchers at the same time. Absolutely. So I actually, a little bit of news here is that one of my colleagues who teaches uh, AP Human Geography uh, at a high school level here in Chicago uh, assigned this book to his students. Um, so, you know, definitely, I think uh, something that, you know, even well-educated uh, high schoolers can can pick up, uh, but I appreciate that you actually, you know, transformed a lot of the the unified growth theory that you put together uh, into something that's accessible, uh, you know, for for non-economists and economists alike. So thank you, Odin.
my pleasure